in this morning. We've been talking for the last several weeks. If you've not been here, uh, first time guest, stand up. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Now listen, if you have not been here, if you've not been here, what we, what we've been talking about is this, this joy in the journey. This idea of the journey that we're on in our faith. So if you are a follower of Jesus, you would say, I'm a Christian, right? I'm saved. I'm born again. Whatever phrase that you use to say, yes, I'm in relationship with Jesus. I'm following him, right? We said this. You used to live in a kingdom in which you ruled your life. And you could do whatever you wanted to do, right? You might have felt guilty here and there for things you should, oh, I shouldn't have done that. But ultimately, you didn't really care because it's my life and I'll do what I want, right? Do whatever I want. There's some sort of Rolling Stones song about that, right? They can do whatever I want, right? Living in this place over here, my personal kingdom. But all of a sudden, God, we said, out of his great love and his zeal, we just named it a second ago, right? God's great zeal and his passion and his love for us, he's wooing us to himself. And there's some moment, right, when we cross over the threshold. You know what the threshold is, right? Threshold is that thing right there, the carpet to the stained concrete. You cross over that into the foyer, right? You have that moment, right, of crossing the threshold from your own personal kingdom. Or maybe you felt guilty every now and then, but you still did what you wanted to do when you wanted to do it, right? Now into the kingdom of God. And we call that kingdom, it's an eternal kingdom. And so we said, when you step into that moment, right, you leave this kingdom, you cross the threshold into eternity. Eternity, begin, heaven begins that moment for you. And you are now living a part of God's kingdom, that eternal life that John 3.16 tells us about, right, begins in that moment. Therefore, you're now living that kingdom. We said this, that's amazing. Now your life and everything that you do, listen, this is like revolutionary. Everything in your life has a kingdom impact. Why? Because if you live somewhere then everything that you do impacts the place that you're living. How many of you walked into your house on Friday and your kids had impacted your house with stuff, right? You left and it was clean. And they came in stripping their stuff off of them as they came and you walk in the house and you're doing this, gingerly walking into your house. Why? Because they impacted your home. Everything that you do in the kingdom has a kingdom impact. And we said, listen, and there's no small or big kingdom impact. That if you, listen, everything that you do in the kingdom, if you intend it to be worshipped to God, is big for him. And has a big kingdom impact. So whether if you're changing diapers in the name of Jesus to worship him, has a kingdom impact. If I'm making dinner tonight with, for the purpose of worshiping God, it has a kingdom impact, right? If I come into the house from a long day at work and I'm picking up my children's, my child's stuff for the purpose of worshiping God, has a positive kingdom impact. Because remember we said the first 30 years of Jesus' life was so important that there's no history historical data whatsoever about it, but Father looked at him at his baptism and said, this is my son Jesus whom I love, and with him I'm well pleased. And in the everyday nature of how he lived his life, intending everything is worship to him, it pleased the Father. And this then is the nature of our life. We step into the kingdom, we're like, oh my gosh, right? Every, this, is, this is so much bigger than me. And now he is Lord. He says a loving Lord. 
And we're following him. We're following his lead. And he's brought us in. Our life is having a kingdom impact. And we said what we, need, we said last week was this. We've got to have a perspective shift, right? It's a realignment. We need to have a vision realignment so we can be people who are motivated by our view of God because he is so overwhelming and so great. And our view of him just catapults us and impacting his kingdom. But we recognize, like probably like most of you, sometimes, sometimes, not, it's like not most of the time for me, right? But sometimes it's difficult to see Jesus in the middle of my day. And that was sarcastic. Did you catch that, right? Sometimes, most of the time, it's difficult because stuff arises. And it takes my eyes, and he wants to realign. Why do you think Jesus had to wash the disciples' feet? He said, he said, don't wash my whole body. No, no, I just need to wash your feet. Why? Because it's your feet that's been touching the ground, right? We live life, and it's difficult every day. So every day, it's difficult. He wants to wash us. He wants to realign our, our eyesight to see him. It's an everyday thing. And so this morning, we want to dive into just this reality then. What, then. what then, I would say, here's kind of the point this morning. What then motivates me? to fulfill my responsibility now that I'm inside the kingdom? What motivates me to fulfill my responsibility then as a follower of Jesus? Okay, everyone write that down, put it in your phone notes, whatever it is. Motivation that helps me fulfill my responsibility, okay? So you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 12. We're going to start very familiar, starting in verse 1. So have your Bibles, you can follow along with me on the screen. Paul is speaking to the Roman church. Just a little background history. Do you know what's happening in Rome? The, Rome? the Jews have been kicked out of the church. The Christian Jews have been kicked out of Rome because some guy named Christus had caused an uproar. Maybe they messed his name up and it was actually Jesus the Christ. Right? Christ. The name Christ, I had caused this great tension. Go back and do some like history there. Christus, some, some guy named Christus was causing an uproar. And so these Jewish Christians who were the followers of Christus got kicked out of Rome. And what was left was the Gentile Christians, right? And so I don't know if you know this or not, but if you go from a Jewish church to a Gentile church, they looked at a little bit big time difference. And so now he's, he's writing to them because the Jews have been allowed back into Rome, okay? And he's writing a letter saying, listen, when you left Jews, the Gentiles created their own church service, their own gathering, their own feel. You need to recognize that what they're doing is holy, okay? And so he writes this letter to both of them to help them relate together and be unified in purpose and in calling as the body of Christ in Rome, Okay? So that's kind of the thrust of what's going on behind the scenes in Rome. So he comes in chapter 12, starting in verse 1, and says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, too, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, specific calling of God in his life, for the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, 
but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith as God has given you, right? In humility, okay? Verse 4, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others, right? So we're one big body. Each one of you have a specific role to play in the body, okay? We, verse 6, we have different gifts. Each has different gifts according to the grace given us. Basically, each of you have been graced, gifted in different ways. If a man or woman's gift is prophesying, let them do it in proportion to their faith. If it is serving, let them serve. If it is teaching, let them teach. If it is encouraging, let them encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of the others, let them give generously. If it is leadership, let them govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let them do it cheerfully. So what we have here is this. Kind of in the picture. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, we're going to primarily focus on verse 1 this morning. It is a transition. You know, when, you know when you're reading a chapter, a book that has chapters in it, and you read the chapter, you get to that point, and usually there's a transition. Usually there's a blank page. Really cool books have like, like little like interlude Bible verses or some really cool quote right there that kind of prep you for the next thing, right? It's prepping you to transition to go into the very next chapter. Do y'all read chapter books? Anyway, so you have that whole thing going on, right? You need to read, okay? I encourage you to read a book a week or a book a month at least, right? And so you have this whole, so that's what happens. Romans chapter 1, verse 11 is this chapter in our book, okay? Then chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 are the verses and the places and the stuff right there. It's the interlude, right? It's that place in here that then prepares me and leads me into the next part of the next chapter, Okay, that's what we have here. It's a transition. We see a transition. So what are we transitioning from and into? Verse chapter uh, chapter one through eleven. Simple. Paul is creating this picture of the work of God to bring about your salvation. If you were to kind of sum up all of chapter one, I'm just like totally summing it up. Okay, but to sum it all up, Paul is basically wanting every single one of you to know. You can't save yourself. You can't get to heaven by doing good things. You can't save yourself. You can't cross that threshold in your own strength, right? Right? Salvation is not by works. It's by grace through faith, not by works, so that none of us can boast about what we did. Chapter 1 through 11 summed up, you can't save yourself. It's the work of God out of his great love through the cross expressed in his resurrection and his faithfulness and your faithlessness, right? No one can save themselves from their own sin. Remember, Paul says, oh, what a wretched man I am. Who can save me from this life of hell that I'm living in chapter 7 and chapter 8? Thanks be to God, Jesus Christ, the Lord, can save me. He sums it all up. Chapter 1 through 11. You can't save yourself. So that's the chapter. He's letting you know you can't do it. You can't make it happen. You can't do it in your own strength. As hard as you try, you're only going to fail. Going to church isn't going to save you. Going to Sunday school isn't going to save you. Going to small groups isn't going to save you. Coming up here and do a minute by winning game is not going to save you, right? Sending a casserole to your neighbor is not going to help. It's not going to save you, right? Only Jesus can save you. Chapter 1 through 11 of Romans. Paul's painting that picture for us. And then he transitions, says, Now, 
now that you know this, now that we've built this foundation that you can't save yourself ever in life, knowing you can't even please God in your own power, I want you to recognize that you are part of a body and you have gifts. And in those gifts, you have a responsibility to exercise those things because you have a responsibility now to be obedient to Jesus and follow him in doing the things that he's called you to do. That's chapter 12, verse 3, through chapter 16. And you see what I'm getting at. He's saying you can't save yourself, you can't, you can't prove yourself, right? And even he would get into saying, and even the things that you're called to do, ultimately those things can't save you, and ultimately God's not going to love you more because you do them. But because you, listen, because you're now part of the body... You have to do something. You have a responsibility to move and to be obedient and to live your life in obedience, fleshing out the call that God has on your life. And your call isn't going to work nine to five every day and making money so you can support your family. That's not the spiritual call of your life. The call of God is to love him with all of your heart, all of your mind, and all of your soul. And the second command is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. So you fulfill God's command in the context of what you do every day. And the call then he's saying, and he's saying, listen, so you have things that you have to do. But before he even does that, he transitions them in chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. He says, all right, so you know this about God. So let me give you the motivation that ultimately becomes the focal point for everything that you actually do. That's the transition. He gives them the focal point, the motivation. He listen, chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, it is the thing they focus on that motivates them to celebrate what he's done and to empower them to make a choice to be obedient to him for the rest of their life. Are you tracking with me? What God has done, the motivation now of what we need to do, and then the things he's calling us to actually do. I wasn't going to say do-do, but that sounds weird, right? The things you actually have to do, okay? So here we go. We look, we're going to dive into chapter 12, verse 1, specifically. He, go, he goes there and says, all right, therefore, I urge you. I urge you. I love this word urge because it lies somewhere between a command and a request, doesn't it? I urge you. I implore you. It's much more than just saying, hey, if you have time, would you do this, right? And it's not a command saying, you need to do this or else. But he's coming with weight behind it. It has an urgency. He's coming in the moment saying, guys, women, men and women, I need you to listen with urgency. I'm telling you, I'm not commanding you. Why? Because there's something about us needing to have the freedom of choice in the moment, the choice to do what he's about to tell us to do. God has saved them, but they have to choose then to live for him. Do you see that in urgency? I'm not, I can't command you. I'm not asking gently, but I'm urging you. I'm coming. You know how you do that? I want to urge you. And when you say that to your children you're, or to someone you know, you know they need to do it. But you know they need to make a choice 
in it. Because there's something about choice in relationship that makes it much more deep and rich, isn't it? If I said to you today, Phil, I choose to love you with everything I have in me. Or I say, Phil, I have to love you today with everything I have in me, right? You're going to go, awesome, Steve, right? Or if I come and say, I choose today to help you, or like, I have to help you. You see, like you can see your kids saying, I have to help you today to do this. You know, I don't really want to. Mom's making me do it, Dad. All right, right? Versus, Dad, I just love you, and I choose to do this, to help you, right? There's something in that choice that's powerful and that's beautiful. And so in this, the word urgency, it carries a weight, but it's about the choice that he's calling us to make. I'm giving you a choice. With urgency, we know that you need to do this, but ultimately it's by choice to follow him. He's empowered, he's, he loves you, he's empowered you, but ultimately to keep in step with him, it's ultimately a choice in your life. But then he comes in verse 2, in verse 2, excuse me, the second part of this, in my opinion, should revolutionize your entire Christian walk. It's a pretty heavy statement, right? If, if you will embrace the second part, it will take you from the short circuit of your mundane, boring Christian life, which 99% of us live every day because you've just gotten stuck in a routine of what it means to follow Jesus, and you're, you're, you're trying to love Jesus, trying to be a good Christian, but if you will embrace the second part, it will revolutionize everything about your Christian life. If you're not a Christian or a follower of Jesus this morning, this is what, is it, what it's all about. It can revolutionize now your understanding of what it means to be a Christian. He says, I urge you, what? In view, listen, hear the words with your spirit as I say them. I urge you in view of God's mercy. In view of God's mercy. This right here, these words are the motivation that then should lead every single one of us to action. Because in this moment, Paul is moving their focus. He's looking at them and saying, what happened? He's saying, hey, I urge you, wait, in view of God's mercy, not in view of self, not in view of others, but in view only of God's mercy. What is God's mercy he's talking about? Real simple. Chapter 1 through 11 of Romans. You can't save yourself because out of his zeal and his passion for you, he moved with everything he had inside of himself to come and to woo you and to save you and to draw you into himself and into his kingdom because of his great passion, zeal, hunger, and desire for you. That's his mercy. And he's looking and saying, is that what you view? Are you caught up in the tension of how those silly Gentiles were doing church? Caught up in the everyday monotony and mundaneness of your everyday life and the job that you have. Are you, is that your view or have you realigned yourself in your eyes to all of a sudden see God's mercy to see the life of Jesus. What is the mercy of Jesus? He came, he left heaven in perfection to come to a fallen world for the sole purpose of relating to a people who were going to betray him and who were going to kill him so he could have the joy of sitting upon a cross and bleeding out and being beaten to a pulp, right? So that he could save broken humanity who was going to betray him and not turn to him and always kind of fall away from him 
for their entire lives, right? All of this representing the mercy of God in the moment through His Son, Jesus Christ. Do you see His passion? Do you see His desire? Do you see the power and the fullness and the nature of His cross? Do you see the beauty of His resurrection and living this life and now going to heaven to repair a place for us and relating to us for eternity? Do you see how He saved us? Do you see His mercy? Is it your view? Is it your view? Or is it not? You see, when we were in Europe, it was great. We're driving from, driving from, from France down into, into Switzerland. You know, we get to Switzerland, you have the Swiss Alps, right? And so we have this moment of driving and all of a sudden, I look into the, I look into the horizon as the sun is going down and the sun's hitting something really high in the air and I recognize it's a snow-capped mountain. And all of a sudden I went, Right, And I was driving out of the periphery of my eye. Right, Because I am stuck. I am enamored on this mountain that's off in the distance. My vision is seeing it and can see nothing else. I'm driving like this. Like this, look at the mountain, like that, oh, like this, right? Kind of like, oh, like the whole thing, listening down, no cars, okay, look at the mountain, right? I'm in there for like the 15 minutes as we're driving nearer to the mountain, you can see lights on top. I'm just going, how did that light get up there? I'm enamored by the beauty of God's creation, right? Because in the beauty of seeing Him, I'm becoming enamored by His beauty and the art that He's created for me to see, and I'm undone by it. Listen, the very first time I saw my wife, I was enamored. I still am, guys, right? But in the first time especially, right, I'm sitting there, all of a sudden something goes, whoop, and I go, oh, there she goes. Who was that? Mm, mm, mm. Right, that's what I did. That's what you did, guys. Mm. Dang. Whoo, who is that? Right? And I'm sitting there going, dang, she is hot. Look at those jean shorts she has on. Man. Listen, guys, this is your story. It should be. If it's not, it's terrible, right? I'm just sitting there. I'm undone. I'm enamored by the beauty of my wife. Do you know who else I thought about that was with me in the tent? Literally the tent of a thousand people there receiving ministry in this tent that I was in in Ichthus or whatever this, this campus, whatever this ministry thing going on in Kentucky. And all I can think about is this girl I just heard named Randa Miltides. Oh, goodness gracious. I'm enamored in the moment. It was a holy moment for me, right? And you know what else? All of my attention and all of my focus was averted to her. I was aware of every guy talking to her. Like, who was that guy? Right? I got defensive. In the moment, I was like, who is he to be talking to her? He is not good enough looking to talk to that girl right there, right? I mean, you know what I'm talking about? Man, you know what I'm talking about? I'm just enamored in the moment. I'm undone by this. I can, I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know everything about her. I'm talking to everybody that she knows, that I think that she doesn't know her. Like, I'm stuck in the moment. Everywhere I go, I'm like, I'm praying for people go like this, where is she, right? I'm make sure she has not left the room. I'm praying, Jesus, more of you. Where's, where's that girl, right? I mean, seriously, I'm doing it. Isn't that so unholy? It was holy, right? I'm telling you. there she is. Right? I'm not. You think I'm joking, but I'm not. I mean, like, I, this is what happens, right? In the moment, I was in view of God's mercy to me. Her name was Randall. Right? You see what I'm getting at? I mean, Steve, you don't deserve her. And I was stuck on her. And so the idea is Paul is speaking in Romans 
Chapter 12, verse 1, it says, In view of God's mercy to you, Jesus should so encompass you and enamor you. His mercy should be so overwhelming that you live in the reality of it every day and it blinds you to everything else and all you can do is look at it. All you can do is be consumed by it even when you're going through difficulty and trials of many kinds where he prepares a table before you in the presence of his enemy and says, come and let's be together and I'm so focused on him that everything else fades away as I'm being overwhelmed by life. And he comes and says, in view of God's mercy, and all of a sudden, the motivation happens. The motivation is two in two ways. Number one, it becomes a catalyst, doesn't it? A catalyst. All of a sudden, it's like, I see it. And I'm like, oh, I've got to be near him. I've got to be near her. I've got to connect. I've got I to get out. It's like a catalyst. Like a, oh, yes. Like you all of a sudden come alive. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is great. This is the best day ever in the history of the world, right? It's a catalyst in everything that I'm doing, but it also becomes an obligation, doesn't it? I feel obliged with everything in me, not out of duty, but out of desire to focus on and be motivated by this thing that I'm looking at. Do you see, like, this oblig- you see the, 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 the beautiful nature of obligation? Like, he is so moved, he's so done this work, that I just feel obligated to be a blessing and to, in return. Listen, I'm not, think about it. Like, if I'm, you think about obligation as desire, so my child running towards the street, a Mack truck bearing down on her, I can't get to her, and all of a sudden, out of your periphery, someone comes running with everything they have in them. They dive the last second. They grab your child. They flip over so they won't hurt him or her, and put him on the chest, and they land the concrete, and they're all, like, and they're without a shirt on because you're at a pool or something, right? And they scrape themselves up. They're hurt. It's painful. And all, you're like, ah! And tears are streaming from your eyes, and you feel obligated out of this greatness and the great passion of your heart to thank them and to bless them and to hug them and to pull back and see them again and hug them out of desire, right? An obligation because of what they've done. Let me tell you something about your Christian walk I think that most of you struggle with. If you've grown up in the South, especially and gone to church and came to Christ in a church in the South, you were preached a gospel that says something like this. Tonight, give your lives to Jesus. Right? Just as I am. In the background, right? In the background playing. Give your life to Jesus and he will fill you. You give your life to Jesus and he will give you life. Give your life to Jesus and he will give you purpose. Give your life to Jesus, right? And he will give you joy. He will give you happiness, right? Give your life to Jesus and all of a sudden your life's going to go great. You're going to have peace. Do you see the problem with that gospel? Because what it was about was about selling you something that would make you feel better. Give your life to Jesus and your life will get better. And so you said, yeah, I want my life to get better. And you pay out your 25 bucks, right? Get your ticket and go sit in on on the Jesus train, right? You're riding the Jesus train. You're waiting. Where's that? Where is it? Where's the joy? Where's the happiness? Where's my stuff that you told me that I would get? Because I was told if I became a Christian, I would be happy, I would be complete, I would be full. Right? And all of a sudden, your Christianity revolved around 
you. And then you get, and then you also what happens? Somewhere along the road, Jesus doesn't give you what you were told he would give you. And so you get frustrated, disenfranchised, and disconnected saying, ah, oh, right? And then you still go to church, you go to the motion, still waiting for God to do that thing that was promised to you. But the gospel of Jesus and what we see here in view of God's mercy is, well, listen, we don't cross the threshold because of what we get from him. We cross the threshold because of what he's already done for us. He's already done the thing. We don't have to say, well, what? I get that and what else? No, we say, because of what you've done in view of your mercy, in the view of the fullness of what you've already done, that's enough. And I will follow you for the rest of my days, whether I get any of this stuff over here, because this was enough. And you were worthy, and I will worship you, even if I get none of this. That, my friends, is the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you came to to Jesus with anything other than that, you will be shortchanged, because you never get what you think you're going to get. You're going to get from God what he desires for you to have. And that is whatever he wants. And it may not be anything. You get eternal life. And you get a relationship with him. And that, my friends, is enough. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you, the end of the story is, the other chapter, right? Because you really need to come to grips with that. But I'll just be a good pastor and say, there's another chapter, and you will get stuff. But you don't come to Christ for that. And so Paul's coming and saying, listen, the motivation for following him is not what you get from him. It's what he's already done for you. And that, my friends, listen, is the realignment. We all of a sudden celebrate the cross. We watch the passion of the Christ from Mel Gibson and we weep saying, that's enough. That's enough. God, if you did that, that's enough. Oh, you're good. You are good. That's enough. My eyes are focused on, they've been aligned, and that's enough. And it becomes the catalyst. And you see the obligation. You've done that. And I will serve you for the rest of my life. Our response to viewing the fullness of God's work is all of a sudden we say yes. God. And I want to tell you the motivation begins in the view of God's mercy, past tense, because it's already enough. I urge you, in view of the majesty and the beauty that enamors you and causes you to be weak at the knees and be speechless and causes your head to spin in the view of God's mercy. Number three, to offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. William Booth was a founder of the Salvation Army. He said, he was asked one time, why is your ministry so successful? And the answer, God has had all of me there is to have. God has had all of me there is to have. And what he's saying is, listen, when I gave my life and across the threshold, I was in view of his mercy, I gave him every part 
of my being. There's no part of me from my old kingdom holding on to everything and all that I am and all my direction, all of my future and all of my past and all of my present, everything, my energies and my passions and my desires, they belong to him and he knows that he has them and he can do anything through me that he wants to do. You see, when Paul comes in the moment, right, he, he, he again says, I offer the freedom of just a choice, this choice, right? Now, the beautiful thing is, is there is really no ch- real choice, is there, when we view God in the fullness of his mercy, is there? That's the beauty of it. There's really no choice because the choice is so obvious. You're urged to do so with everything inside of you, right? And all of a sudden you see it and it causes you, right, to come with this offering, this freedom of choice, joyfully coming, choosing to come before him, right? And Paul speaks to this culture who understands the sacrifice, but he changes things when he calls it a living sacrifice, doesn't he? Because they all know there's no such thing as a living sacrifice, They all know that when they come into the presence of God with their offering of an animal, they kill it. And so they recognize, what are you saying, Paul? But they understand. We understand the coming of of bringing the offering before God. But Paul's saying, but you're not coming now with the offering to die for Christ, right? You're not literally every day you don't come and say, all right, I'm dead, right? I kill myself for you. I'm going to sacrifice. No, he says now you are sacrificing the same way coming before him, but instead of dying for him, you're wholly and completely living for him. That's the living sacrifice, isn't it? We come, we die to self. That's what it means to consecrate, to, to be pleasing, to be, to be holy. To be holy means to take something, listen, remember, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Holy means I choose to set it apart for God's purposes. That's what it means to be holy. You're setting your life apart for the purposes of God. Offering him yourself. As a living sacrifice, meaning you walk up and say, God, here I am. I lay on the altar myself every day, my sinful desires, my personal passions, my own dreams, my own desires. And I place them here so that nothing distracts me for holy and completely living for you because I'm so motivated by what I've seen. And it drives me, it leads me, it guides me. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. So at the end of time, you can say, I have given all of me to God. There is to give. God has had all of me. There is to have. You see, when we transition, we have a responsibility to step into this world now of following Jesus, being obedient to him, fleshing out our role in the body. But we're not doing it our own strength. We're coming and saying, but God, I do it every day focused on view of your mercy. And every day it motivates me, it leads me. I'm enamored and I can't help but come and offer my body as a living sacrifice Holy and completely living for you, not just today or tomorrow, but for every moment of every day of my life, intending all that I am and all that I have and all that I do is worship before you in every moment. Because I know as I do that, I am 
impacting your kingdom in a positive way. And those who, my neighbors who don't know Christ, are coming to know him through my worship of you because I'm so enamored by you and it's driving me and leading me in all that I do. Do you see how the Christian life is supposed to look like? Let's pray. Father, we come into this moment and we're thankful for all that you have done. Father, we could, we could spend eternity thanking you for all that you've already done, past tense. Father, open us to be enamored by the truth of what it means to have a salvation focused on the work that God has already done. And I pray today, Jesus, that you would awaken us into the newness of life that you have for us. God, of being focused on you and being motivated by it. Father, come. We pray this in your name.